0: Thanks for tuning into Behind the Scene, a conversation dedicated to uncovering our biases and how to navigate them in a constructive way.
1: Hi, I'm Mark Bauer. And this is Brandon Polk. And welcome to episode 14 of Behind the Scene, a weekly conversation focused on understanding the biases that are at the root of society's racial tensions. In today's episode, we welcome back Brandon Polk to the show. Hello. Welcome back, Brandon. You were missed. Uh, and happy to have you back to talk about dehumanization today, which is a pretty strong word, but one that we all engage in in some degree or another. Dehumanization occurs when we don't fully see other people for their worth or complete value. We don't see the hardships that they might be enduring. Uh, we don't see the joy in them as well as their sorrows. You might argue that dehumanization is one of the great sins. If Jesus says that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, then the other one is like it to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And in order to do that, though, it requires you to view the other in their totality just like you do yourself. So we'll break it down today by discussing what it looks like to to dehumanize someone in our everyday lives, it doesn't have to be explicitly racist or bigoted. We'll discuss the language that people tend to use when they dehumanize and some surprising areas where people are dehumanizing others. So that's what we're going to get into today. Uh, and so I'll just jump right into it and ask you, Brandon, what does it mean to dehumanize someone?
0: All right. I always get asked the hard questions first. What does it mean to dehumanize someone? Let's unpack the word for just a second. If humanizing is to see someone as human, and dehumanizing is to make someone less than human, then it's important that we understand what it means to be human. And I think that this is an existential question, of course. What is it? What does it mean to be human? Um, what does it mean to be Alive and breathing and walking this earth with purpose as a human, with intelligence, at the biological level, at the psychological level. What does it mean to be human? Um, well, obviously, when we're born, hopefully we're not giving birth to lizards, but we're giving birth to humans. Sometimes you might look like a lizard when you come out of there, but...
1: Lord knows I do. Um,
0: I believe you did, Mark, look like a lizard, very large lizard. And um, But uh, generally speaking, I think when I talk about humanity i am thinking about how it's not uncommon for us as humans to be imperfect that while we are intelligent we are capable of making mistakes we are capable of succeeding we are capable of of um, of hurting other people we're capable of of um, Of loving people we're capable of being angry and experiencing joy we're capable of all of those things we are um we are capable of having um our own destinies and um purposes we are We, we are capable of free will of uh, being able to self determine where we want to go and where we don't want to go if that is if that is to be human, then to dehumanize someone means to take all of those things away from them. it is to say. You don't have the right to feel. You don't, or what you do feel isn't, isn't, isn't a human feeling. It's a primal feeling. Um, you don't have the right to go where you want to go. Um, there is a, there is a master, and then there is, there is its domestic pet. Um, uh, I tell the cat where to sleep. I train the dog where to pee. Um, I um, uh, train the mule how to um, pull. Um, Whatever they pull on on a farm, whatever it is they do, you know, or oxen or whatever it is. I train animals to do what I want them to do. Mm -hmm. That is dehumanization, you know, Um, when we do that to people. And if we're talking about that in the context of race, which we are, um, then we know that that was the actual case, you know, for servitude, um, even for indentured servitude, regardless of whether or not you were black or not, if you were white, like indentured. Servant, You know, then you were not, you were working off debt, but you weren't treated like a human. You were treated like less than human. You were treated like a lower class of, 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 um, of, of created being Mm -hmm. not just a human class of economic or a lower class of economic status, but a lower class of being. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, um, that's like essentially, I think what we mean, that's what we do. Um, We'll talk about this, but there are places I think we do this subtly in our families. We do this subtly in, with people that are, that are the closest to us. Um, we don't recognize that um, for people that are um, oftentimes right in front of us, we are less understanding about their humanity because we don't want to see their humanity in us, and ourselves. We work so hard to be extraordinary as in forgetting that we are also human and think we should strive for being superhuman, um, extraordinary in in indeed. And the only problem with that is that everyone is just really ordinary Mm -hmm. and anything extraordinary that happens through a person is more divine than it is actually by design. Mm -hmm. Not it's more than by my effort. Yeah. It's actually more by God's effort, (laughs) you know, and his fulfilment of things, you know.
1: I think that's an interesting point, and I don't want to you know get too much into it, but it's more like a comment. And I brought up past relationships here, and getting counseling, and kind of learning some things. And you know, you have to love yourself. You know, Jesus says, "Love your neighbor like you love yourself." But in order to do that, you have to see this humanity in yourself. And I think that some romantic relationships, marriage, especially when you're living together with a significant other, that presents an a mirror almost where you know on your everyday life you you can create some distance between your friends or those who are close to you but when you're living together then that becomes really an opportunity for your true self to be seen and if you don't like what is underneath the surface then that's going to come out and create some tensions in the form of a relationship so i think that that's kind of some interesting things because if you don't love yourself if you don't like what's going on then that's going to manifest itself in the onto other people you know yeah and i think that happens you see that happening in political discussions we'll get into that more later in this conversation but one thing that i wanted to to say real quick too is that we all dehumanize to some degree or another otherwise jesus wouldn't have said love your neighbor and who is your neighbor who is the other to you everybody has someone who is the other to them um, when you're in the normative group that causes problems when you don't recognize that because then you can create inequities and injustices. And in America specifically, one of those injustices is the systematic dehumanization of an entire people group in the black community and and enslavement. And one of the things that I'm learning in this Little Lights race literacy class that i talked about and brought on Steve Park, the founder of it, in last episode to talk about safe spaces is one thing that I learned is that Thomas Jefferson and racial science, which we've talked about too before, Thomas Jefferson, when he first kind of posited the idea of how black people aren't fully human, one of the things he said was that they aren't as intelligent as white people, and he told science to go and figure that out, and that's what science did, and that's how they came back with you know racial science, they're measuring the skulls of of black people, they're measuring all these different body parts. Uh, and they're talking about temperament and things like that. And so then science comes comes back and says this is why uh, and gives kind of a, a justification for, for that. Um, so that's how we've taken that racial science then and systematically built out a justification for enslavement of these people because they aren't fully human. Mm-hmm. And it, there was this episode that we were watching in this class and I'll have to pull it up and add it to some resource notes, but because I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but one thing that this expert said in there was that had we just said we want black people because there's an economic benefit to to work in our fields, when the end of that benefit occurred, once that was no longer beneficial to them economically, then that would have just been the end of it. But because we built a systemic, um, I guess, culture or systemic Um, enterprise around it then it persisted and continued even at the end of that when that's what we see today
0: well yeah I mean that's totally right I mean you know the the system or the culture that was that was embedded was meant to reinforce the value of the majority um, by reinforcing the quote unquote lack of value of the minority (laughs) right Mm -hmm. so it's like if, if you are Well, let's use this as like an example, right? So let's just say um, Mark and I have a similar goal in life. He wants to make a million dollars. I want to make a million dollars. He gets there first. Um, Or I see that he's about to get there first. There's a part of my humanity that goes, you know what? I hope he dies. (laughs) You know, there's a part of me that just goes, no, I got to get there first. I'm more valuable than that. How does he get to do it, right? How come I don't get to do it? The spirit of of like comparison in us um, or um, of, of ambition in us puts us in a place where, where we are willing, we are willing to sell our closest friends, right? We are willing to undercut them. We're willing to minimize them so that we don't feel bad about us so that we don't have to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask really hard questions about how come I'm not getting there? How come I'm not X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank, but someone else is, right? And we're not willing to, one, take responsibility for our own actions, for our own behavior, for our own character. And two, we're not willing to just wait for it. We're not willing to work hard for a long period of time. This was the crisis of the entire like enslavement, you know, working the fields, cotton picking and tobacco picking, everything, this was the problem is that um, white folks didn't want to work. <laughs> They're like, if you told me, if you told me, if you told me that I didn't have to work and I could just have all these people work for free, I mean, tell me, and uh, and all I had to do was just convince myself that they weren't human and I'd make millions and millions of dollars, not just for me, but for my kids and my kids' kids. And you're going to tell me, listen, that's, of course it's morally objectionable, but wouldn't it? is that not like, like Satan coming and telling you don't eat the apple, you know, Yeah. you know, like the only app, this, this apple is the one you better eat, you know, Yeah. It's the exact same thing, you know, it's just, you get it really close. Now that's not saying that white folks, part of the majority didn't have, of course, you, you know, they knew it was wrong, you know, sitting around here, living in denial, coming up with things like racial science, you know what I mean? That we know, <laughs> like none of that has been real from the beginning, you know, of time. And, uh, and yet collectively, that's the thing that's daunting. It's one thing for us to give an example about personally how we do it, but then something else to just like collective, like like saying yes to that, you know, and buying into that as a, as a unit, you know, is something that is psychologically unnerving. Um, it should make us all nervous, you know, that we could get into group think in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. And that it ends up being the minority within the majority that ends up fighting against the power structure at B. Mm-hmm. And that's what abolition was for the most part. And it mm-hmm. took for, look how long it took. Yeah. Look at how long it took for abolition to take a, actually make a mark, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. years, hundreds of years, you know, for it to even make its longevity, yeah. you know, or, or, or a real lasting mark, you know?
1: and i think that that's what's so kind of insidious about dehumanizing other people is that it looks so like it's so easy to do and especially if there's an economic benefit tied to it so there's self-interest associated with it you know um if i am walking down the street and i lust after a woman then there is something i'm i'm devaluing her she becomes an object of my desire and I'm not looking at her as a complete person with her own, you know, story associated with it. Um, and so then that just becomes an outlet of my own internal expression at that point, really. And so it's so insidious that we can do it and we can engage in it without even really knowing it. Like there's some big areas in society today where it's like it's obvious. You know, we can talk about illegal immigrants, like the caravan that's going on now, mm-hmm. uh, separated children at the border. Um Police brutality, um, mass shootings, like these are some of the big ones that we can point to and we can say, yes, absolutely, there's some dehumanization occurring there, but then there's some more subtle ones that we all engage in, in one form or another, that it's so insidious because we don't even recognize it, and so I kind of want to talk a little bit about, like, how can we recognize it? One, what are those things? And then how can we recognize it? What is some of the language that we're using when we dehumanize someone? Mm
0: Yeah, Um yeah. I mean, everyone sort of put yourself at the Thanksgiving dinner table with your family right now. And when some crazy Uncle Joe says something, right, and or um, it's crazy Uncle Joe and he's 80 years old and you're like. Kind of wish he would just go, you know what I mean? It's a little bit of dehumanization going on there, right? I mean, it's like it's one thing to like not. Um, tolerate a person and be frustrated with them but then they, we do have these contexts in our everyday relationships in our everyday relationships where we wish people would just go away mm-hmm. you know um, because they're making our lives inconvenient I think we we mention that I think when we um, listen to a lot of propaganda in media um, for instance you know um, Maxine Waters from California when she was at that rally in California and she was uh uh, saying to a group of people there, if you see anyone from the Trumpian cabinet, you destroy, the, you, you just interrupt their dinner, you interrupt them at the mall, you do whatever. I think that is more than reckless. It was out of, it could be, I don't know Maxine Waters, but let's just say it's possible that she was looking at someone like Trump and anyone associated with him as being a little bit less than human right? And mm-hmm. we call it politics, right? Mm-hmm. Or losing civility, but you lose civility when you don't see the person across from you as being as human as you are, mm-hmm. right? Or as responsible or as kind as you are, mm-hmm. or as meaningful or as principled mm-hmm. as you are, right? Mm-hmm. And then we look at someone else and then we, and then we actually call to account, um, you know, some sort of cultural judgment, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that says this person doesn't deserve to have anything that I have. Why do they have a seat at the table? Why do they get to go on the news channel? Why do they get to? And Maxine Waters feels like she can say those kinds of things, and knows darn well she wouldn't want someone to say something like that about her, and then encourage a fit to happen. Right. You know, yeah. Don't let it happen. Let's go around, y'all. It might. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but we'll see. Yeah.
1: And you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting. too. in talking and preparing for this episode, you mentioned the border wall, and I think that, you know, there was Trump, you you talked about propaganda, one of the videos that Trump showed was someone climbing over the border wall, and, you know, well, okay, like, but what is that person you said fleeing from? Like, they are climbing over that wall, they are taking the initiative to to come here, which is a hard thing to do, to leave your own country, but there's got to be something that's so bad about that that causes them to flee that. Mm-hmm. And, but to recognize that would be to humanize them and to humanize whatever pain and suffering they're experiencing. And then if you're to do that, then that leaves you with something to really unpack and wrestle with. And it's much easier to say, no, no, don't climb over that wall. Yeah. Uh, but also in the illegal immigration context, I, there was, I had a, a friend who her family came here uh, legally. They came here on a visa. <laughs> the first thing that they did was it go to Disney World. Like yeah. and then they just overstayed their visa, like right, the visa expired. So there's a lot of immigrants here who came here legally, um and and I think that it's easy to point to all immigrant stories and say, Oh, well they're they're being shameful by crossing the border illegally, which is, you know, an illegal act. But many of them just come here and they, they overstay. Um, so I think even that dehumanizes people by mm-hmm. associating all immigrants as having crossed the border mm-hmm. illegally
0: right yeah it's totally right and i think that's where the singularity and the language that's being used you know the salacious nature of the news cycle is to limit the news <laughs> you know it is to filter the news to what will um either be of more interest they think to the populace or what will be more um, uh, ratings engaging, you know, for whatever reason, and this is, and and of course, you know, you take someone like Donald Trump, you know, who from the very beginning of his campaign, um, as a as a candidate, was saying, you know, all of these quote unquote illegal immigrants, you know, are part of MS-13 and they're terrorists and things like that. Now. My guess is that that's totally possible and and, and true on some level, but there is an alternative storyline there that does not, that not every person coming out of the southern border is fitting into that profile, right? And so... In, instead of saying both narratives, instead of acknowledging that both narratives exist, we stick with one narrative. Mm-hmm. We just stick with one for political purposes, mm-hmm. so that people, the constituency, doesn't have to actually wrangle with the truth because we don't think talk about dehumanization. What do you bet that politicians are sitting around going that the constituency actually doesn't have the have enough intelligence to vote? legitimately around these issues right they say for the people by the people but everyone's sitting in their ivory tower here in capitol hill thinking secretly we don't think our constituents can handle the truth mm-hmm. yeah. right i think that's happening 100 you know and because if that were the case we wouldn't have 30 second news bites We have a little bit more content out there talking about the truth or or the nuances of all of these stories as opposed to a singularity in the narrative that they choose to give us. Mm -hmm. And and that's unfortunate because someone's got to take some kind of social responsibility for that. And I think what's going to happen is what we're seeing now is that you can't get, well, there are... There are major divisions going on. We're split down the middle, and it's because mm-hmm. people are starting to think for themselves again. They're starting to actually look for the for, for the content. We're starting to recognize, I think, just as people, regardless of color or creed, that we are that we are responsible for what we know and responsible for actually standing up for our own humanity. Yeah. You know, you don't get to tell me I'm not right. something enough. I yeah. get to tell you what I am and what I'm and yeah. what I'm not. I get to self determine yeah. for myself. You
1: know, and and I like that. And you've brought up. Um, we've talked. We went on a guest podcast uh, as guests on the election night to talk about results. And one of the things that we got into was uh, the Texas race, the Texas Senate race with uh, Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. Beto made it really close. And Texas is steeply Republican, steeply conservative. And, but he made it so close. And I think one of the things that he was able to do was he was able to get people who traditionally vote Republican to vote for him. Uh, and then, of course, you know some moderates who kind of go either way. But he was able to do that, I think, and this was a Hail Mary, like he he had to to do this. But he was able to be himself, I think. And I think, Brandon, you disagree a little bit. You you don't think he's as authentic. I think you mentioned that before. I could be wrong. But I think he was authentically himself. And that could have been his downfall. Like he talked about guns. And and in Texas, you don't want to touch guns. But if he hadn't touched guns, I've seen people who think we might have – senator beto o'rourke today Mm. but i think that Mm -hmm. what people were attracted to in him was he was being authentic and he was saying things and he was humanizing constituents and i think that there that people responded favorably to that
0: yeah yeah the thing with 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 him and 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 you're right i don't i think it's hard um rather it's it's easier to come in as the new guy and then to appear authentic right because you're because you've had you know, Ted Cruz for all of this time and, you know, Ted also does not appear to be, to me as, as authentic either. Um, but, um, well, I take that back. He's authentic. We as don't, we don't know what it is. We as don't know if we like it or not. I mean, you know, I think at least you know what you're going to get. And I think you're right that, that there are people in the base, you know, in Texas who are like, look, we love Ted. It's hard to unseat an incumbent. And, um, What Beto did is that he was able to create some synergy. You're right around that. Um, I think that for me, it's less about his authenticity, though I'm sure there's a measure of that there, and more about him being able to do exactly what Trump did, which was to tap into, here again, this sense of the other people aren't as human as we are. Right. Mm-hmm. And he's able to tap into that and then create some synergy where even your independents and your moderates are like, you know what, he got it as a point, mm-hmm. you know, and I think I might vote for him. Mm-hmm. But what is he tapping into? He's saying something that whether it's authentic or not, whether he believes it or not, is something coming from a new face mm-hmm. that actually makes sense to you that you really hope is true. Mm-hmm. It's someone who shows some kind of care mm-hmm. it sounds that way. And then when it comes right down to it, put him in the office and maybe he gets into the same. He's doing the same damn dehumanization as anybody else. You know who's to really say? I don't know. But um, but I think it's it's hard. You know, for me to to hear people like Beto, you know, or really just in, really on 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 any side of the aisle, whether you're conservative or whether you're liberal, it's hard for me to. Um, uh, it, it, and it's not about them as people. It's 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 about their position. It's it's about how we work politics. It's about um, how we create these pockets of ideas where we say that someone that thinks differently than you is actually not human anymore. This was my problem with everyone sort of like, go out and get the vote, go out and get the vote, you know, make sure you do it. And then I go, you actually haven't worked within yourself to look at someone who's different than you and, and to humanize them to the point we're making today, right? So we're like, we're just saying, go out and vote, it makes a difference. Go out and vote; it makes a difference. But no one's actually started to love your love their neighbor as they love themselves yet. Mm-hmm. You know. So what do you do after you vote? Voting is not your is not your main philanthropy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what you do when no one's looking at you. Mm-hmm. That's your main philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And if you could do that, and then go to the voting block, and vote on conscience, and vote on principle, and vote on the life that you live in secret when no one's watching, out of, and that life of service, if you have one, mm-hmm. that actually does humanize everybody else around right. you. Then maybe we have something to talk about, you know, but between then, go ahead, get out the vote. I'm happy for you, but yeah. that doesn't mean anything to me.
1: Yeah, There there's kind of that grossness that I kind of felt with the whole – that I always feel around the get out the vote campaign because you, who do you see it coming from? You, you see it coming from the normative left through the media, and I hate to generalize them that way, but – you see celebrities getting up and saying that in videos, and, and <laughs> which
0: didn't make a difference because Taylor, listen, yeah. everyone saw it. Taylor Swift came yeah. out and she was—I think we talked about it—you yeah. uh, know—she came out and she was going for the Democratic candidate, you know, in Tennessee um, against the uh, Marshall Blackburn, mm-hmm. and Marshall won hands down. Marshall yeah. won, and the reason why—here's the reason why—I think I said it on this podcast. I said it makes no difference what Taylor Swift thinks about politics. Who she or who should be voted for? Because she's never been involved or engaged at any level of her life publicly. It means nothing that she tweets out or puts something on her Instagram about who um, everyone else should vote for, right? Why should anybody listen to her for that? Yeah. There's no reason why. Not, you know, appreciate really, you, yeah. but if you actually showed an authentic interest in politics mm-hmm. publicly, then maybe you can give a public. Assertive, or and like I'm not against her speaking, but I'm like, but don't do it under pressure, hon. Don't do it because you are under some co-op of the cultural, you know, minutia of what you think you're supposed to be doing. Like, who cares? Like, you know, I don't know who told you to do that, or you just felt compelled. Someone should have told you not to do it. I don't know, Um, but I guess it doesn't matter because no one listened to you anyway. Yeah. Sorry, but okay. and I love Taylor. I love you. If you listen to this, if Taylor Swift's listening to this at some point, let don't let it be twisted. I love you. I think you're wonderful, and we could totally be besties if yeah. you wanted to like hang out.
1: Give us a call. We'll hang.
0: Oh my gosh, like, I would immediately. I would totally love it, and I could be one of your like breakup boyfriends. Yeah, and you can write a song about it. A song
1: about it. And if you called in the middle of this podcast, which is going really well. We would drop it. We would drop it. Out.
0: We would drop it and hang out. Yeah. And I hope you appreciate the truth I'm spinning right now about it. And then you realize I can be one of your trusted friends. Yeah. We're humanizing you.
1: Okay. Bye. <laughs> so That's great. Uh, yeah. one of the things that like, so as a white, heterosexual, male, Christian, conservative, I'm- as, <laughs> You are all those things. I'm Thank like you. as normative <laughs> as it comes. So it's hard for me to pull examples. And I've talked a little bit about sometimes where I've, I've been dehumanized, generalized, By my outward appearance um and but one of those areas that weighs on me the most is one as as kind of a conservative someone and don't hear me when i say conservative don't hear me say republican no one party has a monopoly on all the good ideas that's just my philosophical bent don't come at me but one of the areas that like really legitimately every time there is a mass shooting the way it weighs on me so hard for two reasons one because of the tragedy of human life that is lost and the, the fact that it's perpetuated normally by an angry white person. Like there's so much sorrow and shame and lament there that I'm, I'm processing that. I'm processing uh, the lives that were lost, especially if they're young people. Um, and just whatever it is that is in our hearts that is leading to that, angry white men to do that, like that is sorrowful. But there's another side of that where I haven't even been given necessarily the space to grieve because as soon as I go on Twitter – Within minutes of a shooting coming down, there's the mayor in that town of California who's coming up and giving a press conference and attacking immediately the NRA. I'm not an NRA member, but they lobby for gun right, gun owners. I'm a gun owner. I've made that aware. And so what I'm hearing from this rhetoric is you have blood on your hands. Shame on you, mm-hmm. gun owner. This is yeah, your fault. Sure. You don't care. And that is not the case at all at all for me and I feel completely misunderstood and people are like oh big boohoo, boohoo. boo-hoo like but that is if your reaction to me saying this is that like well you are a gun owner so you are partially responsible for the gun mm-hmm. violence that occurs like that is itself dehumanizing gun owners um and and it legitimately weighs on it to the point where like mm. for two days every time after mass shooting and sometimes i get better about it and, and other times if i'm just in my fields it really affects me um and again i don't want it to sound like i'm like this sob story but it is hard for me
0: yeah no that's interesting i i think that's completely valid and i would hope that in this country that rationally and intelligently you know um but don't let me presume that <laughs> upon anybody um that uh you know that our lessons on civics in this country are not entirely dead when we're in grade school and learning about you know sort of our you know the uh, the the uh, the brilliance of the second amendment i think that um hopefully we're not getting that lost and the counterpoint to something like the mass shooting like what what just happened in california and, in the uh, thousand oaks or thousand whatever it is um is um is that because of that response that you're feeling? I think that you're describing that the NRA comes out very defensive, right? And then what happens is that, and this is just a strategy point. Like, if I were there, like, um, if I were their PR consultant, I would be like, "Listen, you guys should probably just say nothing for a second, you know, and just kind of hang out and don't, don't actually come to some political defensive, like, kind of position." I know that's tempting. Um, these people who are coming at the NRA have the, have the upper hand, in a sense, because there's tragedy weighing behind them, right? So, so instead of focusing on the families, here again, a dehumanization. We take opportunity to dehumanize another person or a people group if, and especially if, it gives us the opportunity to, glean, to gain more clout, more credibility, more access, right, Um, to um, boost our careers, to boost our profit, things like that. Okay. All that being said, so I completely identify with what you're saying. I think that's right. I think that's true. Um, And I can see how it could be totally negative, you know, for... um, It it could be seen as negative, you know, for um, white male gun owners to be... um, culturally talking about what it means to feel dehumanized that is a counterpoint that i mean it's not the same but it is the same it's the same feeling right it's the same feeling i think there is a dehumanization there but but proactively or predominantly you know that is um yeah that is uh it's kind of like your it's kind of like your 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 21st century you know take on dehumanization you know what i mean like nowhere Probably I'm trying to think any other time in history where this has been the case, you know, in the Western world at least, and it's probably never happened. So here again, you kind of look at it and kind of go, "Well, add about you know 400, 500 years of that dehumanization, and then you can kind of come back to us." But it's not to discount that he, that as a problem, you know. But I think it's one of the things that white folks have got to deal with in this uh, in 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 this increasingly more woke culture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So
1: yeah, and I, and I think the sorry, story white some... folks, yeah. <laughs> I think that there is something to that, in that you know who are who are the people perpetuating these mass shootings, and a lot a lot of times it is angry white men. Um, and why are they angry? I think that that could be a, an entire podcast dedicated to that—the angry white man. Uh, you know, it's going to be too much to get into here, where we only have about eight more minutes left. But um, <laughs> the angry white, men. The angry oh, white man, angry white man—they angry, all right? Oh, They've been angry a long time. Help, help me. Um, <laughs> so. But yeah, so I, I don't know where we're going with that. I think it was really just kind of sur- surprising people groups and kind of trying to illustrate where it's easy to point to the big things and say, yes, mm-hmm. white men, angry, they dehumanize. Absolutely right. Absolutely. It's harder to, to put that mirror back on yourself and turn it back on you and say, okay, this is where, where I'm dehumanizing. I'm dehumanizing the homeless person that I walk by on the street you know, with, with whatever judgeful scorn I'm looking at them on um, mm-hmm. when I pass them. Um, and there's some other groups.
0: yeah i mean we 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 do the same thing you know um with any measure of disabled person, you know um people in wheelchairs um people who are deaf um I think uh it's more of a controversial one, but we do this in general, you know, with criminals um- to, and especially depending on the crimes that they commit, you know murderers, child molesters, you know, in my career, I've worked with both, and um what I find that's true about. Um, nearly all murderers and nearly all child molesters is that they were dehumanized, and so they dehumanize. They were molested. They saw violence. They were traumatized, and they had been dehumanized by their parents or by people in their sphere of 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 impact. And that trauma turned into something else. Now, does that mean that they are that somehow we're supposed to minimize the action, or whatever the the uh, the, the crime is, you know. But there's something about our attitude, you know, towards these people. I think it's, it's definitely something we have to consider when predominantly and disproportionately there are black and brown people in the criminal justice system in this country, right, who have been falsely accused. You clump every criminal into one box and then we dehumanize them all and say, oh, look, all of the black and brown people that I know in the world are most likely people that have, are just, are, look just like people that have gone to prison for something, X, Y, and Z reason. And um, you may not de- dehumanize them on their face, but in your mind you're wondering, are they capable? This is the whole thing about police brutality, is that if there is an idea that because someone is black or brown that they're more dangerous, that is dehumanization. You are thinking that someone is more primal, and they are more animalistic, and it's dehumanization that's embedded in in into a generational expression, into a generational belief. It's something that, that has been around for a while, and secretly and subtly is baked into the consciousness of the majority at times. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that we, um, you know, we're talking about gun ownership and mortars and molesters, and I think we just like lost half of our listeners <laughs> by <But>, like <laughs> you want us to sympathize with who. Um, I think uh, is, but no, that's not what we're saying, but we are trying to give examples and and really, truly, you know, like you talked about, molesters were often victims themselves. And if you want to look back at, you know, some more of this and understanding how that is the case, you can go back and listen to our episode on generational trauma and understand how these things that we were victims of can be perpetuated and literally inherited from your parents uh, through this thing called epigenetics, which is the, the study around that where we inherit anxieties. We inherit uh, the the bad as much as the good from our parents. Um, and so that would be a great resource in, in trying to understand that a little bit more. Um, with our few minutes left here, I will want to leave kind of a, a call to action, uh, like we do every episode, uh, and have you kind of think about and ruminate on the idea of when is a time you have felt dehumanized and when is a time that you have maybe dehumanized someone else and how can you begin to practice really seeing someone for who they are fully, the totality of that person. Uh, And I think some things you can do to start small you don't have to start big by volunteering your time at a soup kitchen but you can start small by just smiling at your cashier at the checkout line uh, say thank you to your barista when you're getting your coffee. And I think these little moments will help you build a heart of gratitude because that is really what's at the foundation of all this to beginning to see the other as a complete human being. Do anything, have anything? anything to add to? That was beautifully said. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's wonderfully stated. You. Uh, and so we are actually, and that this call to action brings up a good point that we are a good time to mention that we are trying to build out a, a some resources, some processes, some platforms for listeners to engage because we get so many text messages and emails and we the, they kind of just sit there. So like this call to action, for example, we will post to our Facebook page uh, to begin kind of a discussion. Uh, maybe you you have an example of when you have felt dehumanized. Maybe you have an example and you're open to sharing of a time that you have to humanize someone else. Uh, Or maybe you have some practical tips yourself for how you can exercise uh, seeing other people completely for who they are. And so if you go to our Facebook page, Behind the Scene, just like the name of the podcast, uh, like the page, follow the page, uh, follow us on Instagram. And these are platforms where we're really going to try to do better about engaging with with listeners. Uh, And then we have some resources to leave you with. Uh, One thing uh, here in D.C., uh, and I understand it's local, but there's an exhibit. Maybe you can go look it up online as well and kind of see some of these these artworks that are presented here. But one is called – it's an exhibit at the National Portrait Gallery called Unseen. Uh, it is by artists Ken Gonzalez-Day and Titus Kaffar. Uh This is in D.C. through January 6th. It's Smithsonian, so it's free. Go make use of your tax dollars. It's a really great and powerful exhibit. We posted uh, – some photos of it on our Instagram as well. So go check that out. Um, and then, Brandon, I think you have some resources. Yeah, sure. I think um, you know, we've talked about this
0: um, book before. It's by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. Um, definitely take some time to go read that. And uh, I think just a simple Google search, guys, um, would be good on two things called the um, one, called the one-drop rule. And then number two is the, is the paper bag test. Do some Googling on those. And I know they'll come up in um, episodes as we move forward. But these were things that were specific to the civil rights era. Um, they were examples of how um, a, a, a system was operating. Um, our system in, in this country was, was operating um, to collectively dehumanize black and brown people. And uh, it, was a, it was a part of our social context and our social living. So we should know about it.
1: Can you talk about real quick what the one-drop rule is? One-drop rule um,
0: was this notion, ba- basically, that if you have one drop of black blood in you, then you were black. And that um, was really important because during that time, in the era of Jim Crow, that was when you were, we were um, uh, seen as uh, three-fifths of a person. And uh, that affected the vote. Okay um the uh paper bag test um was another way of sort of measuring your blackness is that if you were darker than the color of a paper bag or lighter than the cover color of a paper bag then you were um you know black or or not so wow. yeah and wow. this was part of our this is part of how we lived in the civil rights era so mm-hmm. i mean collectively this was like the entire country was so yeah. it wasn't like so we should know about it we don't talk about it that much anymore but if you haven't heard about it you should google it and learn some
1: things about it should know about it Um, and I think next time we talk a little bit about justification I think that'll be an interesting one to unpack some other future episodes will be on the angry white man Um, and then also our podcast our Facebook live broadcast with uh, bringing in a guest to talk about the history of the church and racism and slavery um, and I know, I don't think that I've ever mentioned an episode at the end of one where we've actually followed up and that has been the episode, so I'm <laughs> sorry. Uh, that's just the way things shake out here. Um, but just look forward to the, kind of those discussions uh, coming up in the following weeks. And um, I know Thanksgiving is going to be coming up here soon, and so we might even have one of those really shameful like Facebook videos where Brandon and I will tell you how to talk to your relatives. This Thanksgiving,
0: just don't talk to them. Don't go. <laughs> just don't go. That's the way. Have that's a g- That's our wisdom. Yeah. Our wisdom is if you don't, if you don't, if you don't go, you can't have an argument. That's it. That's it. No, wisdom. There you go. wisdom. Wisdom. <laughs> Brandon's wisdom. <laughs> yeah, only mine. Uh, so, anyway.
1: <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening to us this time, and we hope you come back to so listen same time, same place next week. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Behind the Scene. Just a quick reminder that the views expressed in this podcast are strictly that of Brandon's and mine and do not reflect that of our employer. Uh, And then second, if you enjoyed this content at all, we'd love it if you could like it and subscribe. And then, of course, if you think you know anyone who would benefit from this content or would like to engage with it, please share it with them as well. And we will see you next time.